This is The First Stop, a podcast with the aim of exploring the minds of artists in and around New Haven. I'm your host, David Livingston, an artist and educator. In this episode, we'll navigate the mind of New Haven-based artist Julie Pereira. The works discussed in this podcast can be found on our blog at firststopart.com. Julie's work deals with the cyclical nature of growth, decay, and erosion, and the way in which time seems to mysteriously contract and expand. Much of her work transcends its material properties, taking on a life of its own. In one body of work, she suspends massive walls of layered paper from the ceiling, and then burns intricate organic shapes into the paper, creating deep fissures. We'll discuss this work and other works during this podcast. I wanted to ask you about, because it was really interesting to me that, you know, I, I was looking at your CV and your bio, and you grew up in Connecticut, right? Yes, yep. And then you went to RISD. Yep. And you were interested in um, textile or you yeah, got a degree in textiles? That was my undergrad focus, yeah. What kind of work were you doing with textiles? Um, so as part of their department, um, they uh, have a pretty structured syllabus or yeah. um, course load. Um, so I was learning silk screening on fabric, weaving, um, the, but they also categorize themselves uh, as a fine arts department. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're very much having you think about ideas and meaning. And, um, you know, I took a f- class, a couple classes, um, changing fabric surface and um, from idea to meaning. These classes were really getting me to think through the material. Yeah. And um, designing surfaces, surface patterns really from my own interests. So I then found that at the end of the day, kind of in my junior year, that the idea was more important than the, the material. Yeah the, yeah. the design. Got it. Um, so in terms of making a viable um, couch fabric, mm-hmm. things kind of fell apart for me. You're saying you went to school and you were trying to make fabric f- that would actually be used in somebody's home, potentially. Yeah. So yeah. the degree was kind of questioning. It was allowing you to, to do both. Mm-hmm. And they were always asking us, do you want to go this way or this way? You're doing yeah. both of these things right now. Which one do you want better? And I think towards my junior year, I was even taking some sculpture classes and they were like, wow, your design works really improved. But your your sculpture work is really interesting. And cool. they said, which which way did you want to go? And I'm like, I my heart is totally with this sculptural work that it's very experimental and where the object is really creating the space for a conversation mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, something that is then going to be mass produced and viable in someone's home or single produced. Um, okay, so I think design is still very beautiful. Like, I don't want to yeah, knock yeah, yeah. it sure. but at all. 
you're uh, thinking about ideas more right. at the moment yeah. instead of and experimentation towards yeah. like thinking through something process as right. opposed to end product and so you graduate from RISD and then you spent like almost a decade in yeah. Japan yeah uh, what was the name of the? It was uh, Kyoto Seika University. Yeah, Seika. Seika. Yeah. I went on their website and yeah. their mission statement was like super poetic. I don't know if yeah. the mission statement is actually you know acted out as as you're not, at the school. Yeah. But I, it was just a really interesting, like something that you wouldn't see at a school here. Sure. Um, I don't know what it what it says, but um, it was something like, you know, I mean, it was I guess it was similar to stuff that you hear here, see here, but it didn't have this kind of legalese kind of sure. tone to it. It was more like I, I, I don't I can't so explain it. There, the interesting thing about there, there's a couple interesting things about the university. Um, it was started by activists in the late 60s. And so. Um, it has a different vibe than other universities. Yeah. How did you get, what made you want to go there? Um, that university in particular um, has an exchange with RISD. So there was a connection. And then as far as wanting to go to Japan, that's a whole other story I can get into. But um, I mean, why not? Yeah. Yeah. Like why, so why did you want to go to Japan? So it was a bunch of little things that kind of uh, built up for me. Um, when I was 11, my parents decided to take in a, an exchange student. So we became a host family. And it was an incredible experience for me at that age to realize that there was this totally other way of doing things. I remember writing down the letters like I'm going to write down A and you write down A in Japanese for me. I'm going to write down B and you write down B in Japanese for me. And it was like, no, that's not at all how their alphabet works. That's cool. So you had to sort of conceive of this other, totally other cult, different culture yeah. where the, the kind of logic structure of whatever the English language or, or Western Languages just doesn't apply. Exactly. So do you speak Japanese? Yeah. So um, in junior high, I went to public school and they happened to offer Japanese. And I mm -hmm. was able to take Japanese with a native Japanese um, teacher. And it was a just absolutely wonderful experience. So same thing at that impressionable age of high school when you're trying to figure out how to be What's, yeah. what, how do you behave? What are the possibilities of behavior? And yeah. we're learning this way of speaking to each other that is not the way that our, again, our, that our language is. So that was really interesting. And we also just the watching movies and um, all kinds of fun stuff. It, yeah. Uh, I was like, oh, this is so cool. Yeah. So um, then at RISD, I, at studying textiles, they're, as you might know, in other fields, their innovation, their, their sensitivity, their strive for excellence is mm -hmm. just phenomenal. Um, the kimono itself, their traditional garb, allows for the fabric itself to have a lot more attention than the construction of oh, the garment. Oh, that's... That's so interesting. Like, can you give an example of, of that? Um, so there, uh, whereas we might wear um, solid print fabric, I'm sure they do, but tr traditionally, mm -hmm. um, because the fabric is is very much just, um, tw you know, about 12 inches wide, 
mm-hmm. and woven long, and it's not cut very much. Mm-hmm. Um, they're then playing with the weave, playing with pattern, playing with color combinations that we just don't see so much in our textile traditions. Wow. And I'm talking very yeah. old. You have two kind of different modes yeah. of working, right? Yeah. One that you describe as subtractive and one that you describe as additive. And they're sort of very different methods that relate, it seems, conceptually. Mm-hmm. But when I look at the subtractive method with these walls of paper that are huge and thick with like 50 layers sometimes yep. of paper, you burn them, right? And yes. you burn them with incense. On one hand, you're burning the paper and it's very destructive to the paper, but there's also this real attention to detail, like Mm -hmm. each burn, like you're using this incense stick as kind of a, almost like a pencil or a pen in a funny way. Yeah. I I talk about it as drawing and carving. Drawing and carving. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really, really interesting, but it, it seems like you have a love of the material and a care for the material an attention to detail. And also, is the paper that you're using a specific type of paper? Yeah, so um, that particular paper um, for the big pieces I'm using, it's called Tengucho, and it has kozo fiber in it, which is really long, strong fiber that's, um, you know, it it's, works really well for so it allowing just... it to still be thin. Yes. Because the thinness gives me some transparency. So you can see a little bit of the layer behind it. Oh, cool. Wait, so that helps you to not burn through the other layer or kind um, of see what's happening with the other layer? Yeah, it helps the layers sort of um, meld with each other. Got it. Um, so they have their separateness in their physical state, but they're by each other. So they're then kind of connected because the light can pass through them or you can see the other layer through the layer that's in front of it. So... Is that paper, it's thin, but is it a really resilient paper? It's strong, yeah. Yeah. So I dye the paper um, and it holds up. Whereas if I use just tissue paper, which is also really nice and thin, um, it wouldn't hold up to the dyeing. Do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, the conceptual side of the work or what it means to you? I think, you know, this layer is a really key word we're just talking about and that is something that was a very present structure in my textile study and I became really interested in the idea of layer skin Mm -hmm. um, cross-section that we could see the layers of everything in space yeah yeah yeah. like if we did a cross-section of this um, situation here you know be all these different layers of like inside my head and then the surface of my face and then the microphone and the space between us and, you know, et cetera. Just understanding space as uh, as this idea of layers. So relation and connection could be kind of diagrammed um, through um, the depiction or construction of layers. So interesting. I actually last week was talking to Howard Eliazine, who's an artist working here, and he was, like, layers were really important to him. And he was talking about the palimpsest. Oh, yeah, palimpsest, yeah. Palimpsest. Yeah. And then I noticed you had a body of work about the palimpsest. He kept mentioning it, and I was like, I guess I kind of get what that is. Um, 
And then I looked it up and it's sort of a message that's been obscured and layered over. Yeah. These, and that kind um, of has a deeper meaning. So um, parchment paper, you know, it's stretched yeah. cat, sheepskin. Yeah. And Whoa. it's difficult to it's it's precious in a way. You yeah. know, it's it's takes it's not e- it's not easy to get. Um, they would scrub it and and wash it with milk. They would, you know, write something on these and then they would scrub it because they needed to reuse it. And who was doing this? Um, I guess in the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages. Okay, got uh, it. I, again, I'm not, I don't have the history. That's okay. You don't need to have the history. <laughs> Just carry on. <laughs> um, but you, you might have some religious text and then maybe something less pious on top or maybe even even a shift in the purpose that like if you took one piece of paper and then wrote something else on it and wrote something else on top Mm -hmm. then you get this these the old words kind of shining through at at moments where they weren't scrubbed off completely and they mix together and sometimes create new meaning so i think as a concept that is used by philosophers to describe you know, some of the pastiche of our um, cities. The old city being yeah. built over, but some of it remaining. and Exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah that's really, that's really interesting. I, I started thinking a lot about, you have a work called Palimpsest, yeah, right? Yeah, the Seal Palimpsest. The Seal Palimpsest, where you're kind of playing with the idea of language and meaning. I was thinking that the sort of the artistic practice is very much about saying something but obscuring it enough that people need to sort of think about what it might mean or giving people an option for what it means in a funny way yeah um i find that i tend to have several concepts in one work yeah and um you know, I could talk on any one of them. <laughs> sure. I sort of jumped over to this other one and maybe... No, no, it's fine. Maybe I shouldn't have. But bringing it back to the the paper walls. Yeah. I mean, there seems to be a relationship, obviously, right, in terms of, you know, you're talking about layering and information. Yep. I mean, you're, re- you're removing stuff. Mm-hmm. And do you start from the top or the bottom of the... So I... Um, Started making these pieces. Um, I was layering a bunch of pieces of paper. Um, actually, started doing them with tracing paper, and I was burning one side and I was burning the other side. Yeah. And like, I uh, would go around the ring of this embroidery hoop, oh, like cool. traveling around, and then I would go through to the other side and and go on the other side as though it was a conversation. Cool. And then I'd and then I'd take it off of the hoop and open it all up. And then you could see like these slices of space. That's cool. It also relates to your training in textiles, right? Yeah, it may have been just a tool that was present. I was like, oh, this is good for this. And then I started using colored paper and trying like a tissue type paper Mm -hmm. um, and layering. And I wanted to reveal the color below. Mm -hmm. So I put white on top usually. Mm -hmm. And then I put color below like like I was dig like a you know something's dying but then something's being revealed something new is allowed to to be seen and and to be present with the air so um i with the large pieces i'm layering them all i put all the paper up mm-hmm. and then i from the front 
I burn back. So I haven't I done it. it. Yeah. I, I haven't done it the other way really for for the big pieces. It would I, be hard to do, I think, right? I need I think I need a bigger space or bigger setup. You know, I have a vision of it. So yeah. it could it could be a future piece. What's going through your mind when you're making these pieces? I saw that, you know, one of them you had a more of a kind of geometric burning yes, shape. Yeah, the the newer one. To me, on one hand, they're messy, but then when you go, like, from a distance, it looks like not like paper. It looks like almost like lungs or something like that. And then when you go in closer, it looks like you make these very thoughtful, deliberate decisions. Mm -hmm. Is that the case? Am I? Yeah. So um, the first piece that I made on this big scale, I was working very timidly. I spent a lot of time dyeing all that paper and I knew that I couldn't go back. And so I was taking the incense, which is a very gentle ember. Mm -hmm. The paper, if it's too thick, it will put it out and putting that against the paper. And just I was like eating away at the edge of the paper, just Mm -hmm. in little nibbles, right? Like just pushing it against the paper. It has a kind of a... Some of it looks almost like worms eating away at yeah, wood yeah, or some like people are really uncomfortable or something. Yeah, 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 definitely. So I was watching the paper fiber of this particular paper would sort of spark in one direction. So mm-hmm. the incense would touch the paper, make a hole, and then it would spark. Like there'd be a little spark or like, so I'd fall, I'd watch that. I was almost observing that. And then I would follow that. I was like, all right, I'm going to go in that direction. And then at the same time, I'm watching some of the smoke curl up in and around and in and out of my space. And I'm like, oh, what if I reflect that into this as well? So I started kind of like, if I work very quickly with incense, it works almost like willow charcoal. Mm. I can get like a very light um, charcoal line. So I would kind of like in a gesture drawing um, uh. fashion, chart out where the movement was going to be. Larger so movement. Burning, doing a subtle burn that doesn't burn through the paper, but just marks it yeah. in a drawing fashion. Or, and then you actually burn it away. Yeah. Um, also, if you picture um, when the incense goes out, it still has a little charred bit at the end. So that then acts as like. Uh, oh, I see. So, so you're using the literally. carbon yeah. of the burnt, which is literally charcoal, yeah. to draw. Yes. Okay, I get yeah. it. Yeah, sometimes. And and then, you know, I'd, I'd stand back and I'd say, okay, you know, this is right. And then if I got something I really liked, but I wanted to go deeper with it, deeper through the layers, yeah. I would kind of trace that onto the second layer. So let's say I had, you know, um, like a curve shape like that, like mm-hmm. a uh, shape like this. I'd then burn that edge with the incense to copy it okay, to the cool. next layer. And then I take that out. I take this whole, like, so there there are, I have all these scraps and I've been saving them. And recently I've been making paintings with the scraps. Oh, cool. So I'm like pasting the scraps on to masonite panels and making oh, new wow. compositions with them. But You talk a lot about life, death, birth, yes. this kind of yeah. symbol of... You almost talk about the burning as a form of death to like make way maybe for new life or do you want to elaborate on that or what are you thinking about Um, there? 
I talked a little bit about that first piece with the tracing paper where I was kind of make, making space or making a channel for communication. Yes. Uh, and then as I continued more with it, I was like, oh, I'm I'm revealing something. I'm mm-hmm. there. And, and what am I doing? I'm like, what am I doing here? I'm burning. This is like this is something that can't be reversed. It, it's a physical change that mm-hmm. that can't be reversed. And especially when I got onto that big piece and I was like, oh, God, if I mess up, you know. Yeah, you put a lot of money into it <laughs> yeah, already and yeah, time. Or, yeah, and- I mean, but in that, it's like, well, that makes it that much more weight on the line in a good yes, way. Yes, Uh Raising the stakes. Raising the stakes and, you know, I really need to be paying attention to what I'm doing yeah. while it's happening. And, and so it really became this extremely engaging process for me. So I'm in front of the work and that's that and I am and stepping back from it and watching what what can I take away. Sometimes I would get a little stuck Mm -hmm. and and sit in front of it Um, as I was burning through it and making the this wall where the paper is hanging Mm -hmm. from a fixed edge as the holes started to come, the paper then started to move. Oh, weird. And then when I showed it, people would approach it and their physical body would displace the artwork in such a way that it looked like it was breathing. And um, I didn't necessarily go into this material process with the intention of this idea of life and death. Mm -hmm. But through the attention to the materials, the idea it became so clear to me. And it's so strange because incense is used in Buddhist ceremony and absolutely Buddhism's all about um, rebirth and letting go and letting things pass. I was going to ask you about it because there is that incense has that religious connotation to yeah. it across, actually across a lot of cultures too, even in, you know, Catholicism, right. they use it. Um ceremonially do you pick any particular kind of incense like with a particular smell or yeah um um, i've gotten more into that recently so it started out as um the japanese incense is really thin Mm -hmm. so it gives me more precision um but i um in my most recent work started researching more and more about it the first work the first big works Whereas the cheapest stuff I could find. <laughs> That's uh, right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, you're using a lot yeah. of it. Um, do, do you have a, like studio landlords and are they okay with you burning uh, a bunch of stuff? Probably like try and keep it on the yeah. DL. But they saw I the smell actually was bothering me. And so I put a vent. I installed a vent in my window and the maintenance people were like, what's that all about? That's funny. <laughs> but, so do you have to do it late at night or something when people aren't around? No, or? no it's it's just like, uh, I just, the thing is, is I think if you tell people about it, they're like, oh my gosh, this is a major fire hazard. Yeah. And, you know, it does have hazardousness to it, but I think it's less hazardous than your oven. And you're not... Like a flame never happens. It's just no. a kind of eating In away. Fact, yeah. As long at. as I, I need to make sure that there isn't a flame because that would mm-hmm. then consume the work. You also talk about growth, like yeah. the growth of a tree. 
Is that that's for the other work or is well, that for this work? No, they're they're both connected. So while when I'm taking away substance, I'm thinking about that flip flop of negative and positive. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that idea that, you know, those if you look in a visual illusion book. Yeah. And they do the vase with the two faces. So if the vase is the positive space. But oh, yeah, sure. Negative and positive space yeah, that, kind of illusion and that work. F- yeah. Where you can flip back and forth between one, yep. the, what you think is n- nothing there actually is the thing. and Right. Um, that makes a I lot of sense. I love that design concept. The stuff that's taken away is, is, the, the, thing. is the thing. And yeah. it, actually, if you look at it, it is kind of tree, like bark, barky maybe. Yeah, I don't know. yeah. I know what you're talking about, the sycamore tree kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. But yeah, the, the tree that I talk about in the artist statement, it's just a area of wonder for me. Yeah. You know, could I make a sculpture from the inside out? Where, where, how does this tree telescoping into, and, and where is that bark? Like the bark, where do those cells come in? Yeah. <laughs> I just, I mean, right. I know I could be talking to a biology person and they'd no. say, well, this is how it happens. No, but. yo, no, I read that and I was, it is really fascinating when you think about just, okay, like there's this little tiny seed and then yeah you know it grows into this massive thing and you talk about scale a lot Mm. and scale in relation to you know your scale as a human being and sort of seeing something as tiny and then you see that tiny thing transform into something that dwarfs you yeah yes and it this little thing becomes this kind of sublime beautiful powerful thing yeah, I think over that, time. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think this this tiny is really the place for our, our imagination to where our you know our physical bodies can rest and the small can just take us. We can enter it uh, mentally, and yeah. um, and then kind of play in right. our imagination. Um, and but yeah, the body, uh, the viewer. I in going to see work um, in person. I um, am really interested in how my body is in next to sure. a sculpture, and you you like start to understand your your human form because of a sculpture. That's that's interesting, right? We could be any size. In a funny way, unless we see something else in relation to ourselves. Exactly. Like we could be tiny or huge. In terms of the way the works appear, there's also kind of a female, you know, a vaginal look to the paper. Right. Is that something that you've thought about or is it just something that happened? Yeah. Yeah. My friend, the green one in particular, she's yeah. like, it's like a big green vagina. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I guess so. You know, <laughs> it's not something like I'm not trying to to make um, that. But I yeah. I kind of think it's interesting that that's the image that has come out of um, the practice. I am very interested in caves. Sure. And so, I mean, caves are very much uh they're like the phallic object of vaginas (laughs) exactly (laughs) Um, exactly so 
um, because of that, I mean, it's like, all right, you know, um, and then also, you know, that that then is this portal form, this organic portal form that's like giving birth to sure. other things, uh, you know, other life. Yeah. So with that, it, it kind of makes I mean, then there's the idea of layers is very much in that form as well. Absolutely. So, you know, I'm, it's not surprising to me that that's there. I saw it actually in person, uh, one of your sculptures, because okay. I went to that art space show oh, okay, that yeah. you were in. And um, I wasn't. That one's a little less so. It's yeah, the green one that's. The green one that I have up looks yeah. that way more. I would say that the overwhelming thing was actually the sense of scale, the sense of the texture of the paper, the sense of wonder about what the material yeah. actually, what is this? Like it doesn't, it doesn't quite look like paper from a distance. And it has this, I mean, I love that it's both physic, physically dwarfs the viewer, but then is so fragile. Like you could just so easily damage it right. at the same time. Right. But it's also imposing. Yes. Um, I also wanted to ask you, because you have this other practice that also seems to be about growth and or organic growth to a certain extent, yeah. maybe? Yes, yes, absolutely. And you use these little tiny stickers and they kind of multiply. You were describing the way in which you have to make a decision to branch out the stickers. Mm -hmm. And how these kind of two alternate paths kind of coexist in time. Yes. And I should say, not sculptures, more works on paper. Or I guess they're sculptures. Yeah, well, they're it, installations, yeah, right? Yeah, it was um, confusing to me when I first made them, or for a while, what to do with them. Yeah. And recently, a gallerist was like, you need to make these into a book, and you need to, you need to put them on paper. Got it. So you were you <laughs> were just like, kind of putting them in the space, yeah, and, and I, you have the, this amazing. I, I can't remember what it's called, but you fill a whole room yeah. on the floor and the walls and the ceiling. Yeah, that was my with, uh, master's work. Um, I, I started making them. I had plans for more burned work. Yeah, and I just like couldn't stop making. You couldn't stop making. I, these, I couldn't yeah. stop making them, and my my friend was like you should do that. You know, you should keep going with these stickers. And so like, okay. And, and then like, I couldn't, I really couldn't stop. Like my friend, I had another friend who was like, Julie, you have this show coming up. We need to get these to the gallery. Yeah. <laughs> and then like, Oh, I don't, I don't know. Like, you know, I, I didn't know for a while how to put them up or mm -hmm. how they were going to go. But Living with them over a couple of years, like living, I would make them, I would put them on the wall in my apartment. I would be sleeping. They would fall down. I woke up one night and I had one that stuck to me. That's funny. And I, I looked out, <laughs> you know, that flash moment where like, ah, like what's yeah. that thing? Yeah. And I liked how they kind of traveled at like, like a virus or mm -hmm. like a bacteria and, um, just, you also talked about them as an kind of aggregators. Yeah. And I so and I also thought about I mean, I thought definitely about bacteria and then I thought about the internet and yeah. sort of like the way information spreads yeah. in this organic way. Yeah. Even though it's well, we are organisms, so it is sort of this extension kind of, organic, of ourselves. Yeah. yeah. 
and the kind of seemingly random decisions that are made or they're not random, but they are they're organic. They're not based necessarily on a kind of logical geometric system. Yeah. They kind so, of grow out of each other. Right. Sometimes I will uh, make rules. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I think some of the visual interest is where those kind of deviate or where like something changes mm-hmm. in the rule. So it's not like I was totally programmed in. Right. Right. I guess maybe that a, makes a, sense. Um, a, a fallible machine or something like that. You had, I don't know if this was the book series, but it was called From a Pool in the Floating Garden of Yama, Yamata no Orochi. Yes. Is that pronounced yes, correctly? Yes, you got it. Awesome. Um, and I, so I like did a little research. I nice. was looking that up and it's like some like multi-headed mythical dragon yeah. is the is what the Yamata no Orochi is. Yeah. And that so um, it's really funny because I needed a title for the pieces and I was looking at this Borges book I had in my in my apartment and I came across this story, The Garden of Forking Paths, mm-hmm. which I'm not oh, gonna, I read that actually. Do you know? Okay. I read it last night actually. No way. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of like tangential, but I just think the title really grabbed me. Mm-hmm. The Forking Paths. Absolutely. And when he starts talking about time and this, I don't know, there's imagery in it as well. And the Asian Im- um, aspect is also like, oh, that's so weird. Well, it has that. Um, I mean, we should sort of. Yeah. I, tell, tell me, me if I'm getting this right okay. or wrong. So it's a story. It's a short story by um, Jorge Luis Borges. Yes. And um, it takes place in World War One. Yes. And there's a Chinese guy who's a spying for, He's a spy for the, the Germans or for the allies or the I'm not sure yeah, he's anyway. a spy for somebody and yeah. it doesn't actually really matter who he's spying for in a way but he knows that he's gonna you know be caught and he has to deliver a message yes and he kind of, the story kind of goes in this really bizarre, surreal direction where, you know, he has an ancestor who's uh, from long ago, who was sort of the town fool or has been thought of as foolish because he was going to build a labyrinth. Yeah, but he didn't build a labyrinth. But but it was in. But he did (laughs) because it was because his writing was the, you know. Yeah. I guess I'm giving away the plot to people who haven't read it, but whatever. It's still worth reading. It's It's beautifully written. It's so short. It's super short and it's really worth reading. Maybe I should put a link on your yeah. on your page. But it was a really beautiful work and it seemed so related to what you were doing. Yeah. The, this and, and what you wrote in your statement about like the alternate paths existing at the same time. The sort of the idea in this story is that like what if we didn't have to make decisions in our lives but would it still the same thing happen would the same thing happen and could all of our choices coexist yeah 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 yeah. you're making these pieces that are sort of branching into these different alternate like you you're making a decision right you but you're not totally making a decision because you're executing every decision right you're making a fork and the both forks can go in a different direction, but you continue them. Yes. Right? Yeah. And they're they're it's very improvised, you know. 
And then the book, it's like you do every option or you're trying to do every option at once of organizing the stickers. Yeah. And so um, I was putting together my master's show in Japan and they were like, all the titles need to be in Japanese. And I'm like, oh, "Oh, God. God. (laughs) All right. So then I find out, you know, the story has been translated into Japanese Mm -hmm. and it has this really awesome title involving this mythical eight-headed serpent. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yes. Because so that's the land the, word for... The snake was this big, like, you know, hidden symbol in all of this is like a symbol of movement. Um, Andy Goldsworthy talks about the snake as the perfect sculpture because it's a record of time. You know, he's really interested that's in cool. time. And I love that. And I, but, but then we have, you know, the snake is, as... Um, record of of time and growth and with its shedding of its skin and all that and then the you know so Mm -hmm. but making this dot one dot was one moment in time the next dot was the next but then the snake has the forking tongue and so it then was like yes (laughs) get it i don't know it was so good when i found out the japanese uh, title so i mixed half and half Mm -hmm. for my title that's so cool how the japanese title can actually added, enhance yeah. the meaning of the story. Exactly. And, and wow. like the, the eight head, like eight is a number of infinity for us. You know, I don't know. It was like interesting. We're all sort of haunted by time sure. and the passage of time, but not everybody is necessarily making art about mm. the passage of time always. Lots of people do, but not everyone. I mean, I had Jacqueline Gleisner in here and she was dealing with the infinite and stuff in her work. Yeah. What do you think your fascination with time and infinity is? Um, Where does it come from? Yeah, there was, I'm thinking of this um, essay I wrote a really long time ago where I was writing about how my concept of time is different than other people's concept of time. <laughs> and right. that these ex- in our experience that we lose track of t- of you know the clock mm-hmm. um, that that time can seem to expand. I just find it to be this interesting substance that is invisible, yeah. irreversible, or is it? I don't you know. It's, right. So it's kind of squirmy. Yeah. And uh, it just, but it's also very cut and dry at this at mm-hmm. you know simultaneously mm-hmm. and so the um the paper walls start to be about markers of time as yeah, well right yes. they're sort of a record of time yeah uh, fascinated by um geology the and like oh you can see this last layer is during this period of, yeah oh but, that's cool yeah part of the mm. construction of those in that stratified way shows that but but i think before you were talking about the fragility of the work and mm-hmm. it was like well you know how many times can i show or how long yeah. will this last yeah. well i don't know you know how's it faring right now i'm surprised how well and maybe it maybe i was thinking it was more fragile than it is you know where I'm do able you store to, it so how? this is a question i get asked a yeah. lot um i roll them up the layers are mm-hmm. in groups and they roll up pretty nicely. They roll mm-hmm. beautifully, actually, if you do it well, onto um, tubes. Cool. And then they fit into a box. So, wow. um, you know, the size of a 
one of them is probably the size of my body. Mm-hmm. You know, rolled mm-hmm. up, all rolled up. That's really cool. And and then how convenient that you can roll them up and yeah. kind of send them off. Yeah, I find places if you need to. Sculpture or, can be such a burden in the it, space oh it my takes God, up, yeah. and I still feel that. But uh, I one thing I forgot to ask you. Yeah about is you know you talked about with these paper walls you dye the paper mm. what kinds of decisions do you may have to make in terms of what color to make different sheets of paper yeah um for the big pieces i um i definitely did it on a small scale and tested the yeah. layering but um i am in each piece referencing uh, different different ideas. There's and there's several several different ones together. Yeah. Like, um, but for the first piece, the the one um, that starts out that I made in 2008, um, I call it floating wall number one. I think um, it's the one that's that I showed in Gallery Gallery in Kyoto. It's the first one I made, um, and it starts out white, mm-hmm. um, and then it goes into like a peachy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it goes into some different grays, and then finally this, this um, like chartreuse. Cool. Um, and what I was thinking of um, is this white nothingness, most basically white yeah. nothingness. Yeah. The with that paper, I do get quite a bit of a brown edge, and I wanted to counter that brown, um, sort of dead. Yeah. color um, with the glow of, of the ember. So I made that sort of glow tone. Mm. And then I wanted to make several layers of, of ash and then this growing color in the back. And then also on top of that, I wanted to create the illusion of space. So the warm colors coming forward, these more um, gray color, making some ambiguous space going backwards. Um, cool and so so forth so i think when people see it they're like oh i thought it was so much bigger than it is when they saw it on as a picture Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. i don't know if you had that experience but that's one example the first time i saw it was not in a photo which i kind of like so yeah i was like what is this this is (laughs) and then then when i was looking up your work. I was looking at it in photos, and I'm actually glad I saw it in person because yeah. it really is the kind of thing that it looks beautiful and amazing in photos, but it's a really different experience it in is. person. Yeah, it's hard to um, communicate that people. So there's there's a charisma to the object. Absolutely, right? absolutely, and I think that's my. Although I find object to be burden, I that's why I'm drawn to create. Yeah, because I think it's like, wow, it has such a presence. Totally, when you make something like that, and it communicates louder, more effectively. Maybe. Did you have like one or two professors in Japan that were really influential or guided you? Yeah, um, yeah. there was um, my advisor during the entire um, time. She um, is a practicing artist herself um, in. The textile department, she creates what I guess is considered fiber art, Mm -hmm. Um, but she makes large scale installations using knitted paper and wire and she dips them into paper pulp. And um, she was just an absolute blessing to have as a guide as I made these works. Um, She would say just a couple words to me 
at just the right time. That takes a lot of I don't know how she does talent it. to do. I, to know you know, I yeah, I, I agree. Not detrimental. You know, just like yeah. oh my gosh. Um so yeah, she she was um she's the one for sure. That's cool. Yeah, Machiko Agano. When did you realize you wanted to become an artist? Yeah, um I guess there's several stages to that, but uh I have these vivid memories of being in preschool, even stuck in the corner of the room with the easel painting all day. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) uh, You know, I remember being in elementary school and other students being like, can I copy you? You know, like, whatever. (laughs) But okay. Yeah, I have this like weird in preschool, I remember I would sit with the Play-Doh that was edible. Because yes. it was like made with flour and I'd like, it was salty because I ate little bits of it and I would like sculpt with <laughs> and sit alone. Totally. It was like a little refuge. The, yeah. Um, and those behaviors I think continued and, and I think there was a, some drawing book my mom had that I read in junior high and it just was like a light click for me about seeing the world and translating it to a flat plane mm-hmm. uh, in lights and darks mm-hmm. or, you know, different differentiations of color. And I just started like drawing nonstop once I uh, realized I could draw realistically. And then it was like, I don't know, was, wasn't sure if I wanted to go to art school or not. Um, yeah. But I did a few art camps. Um, I went to RISD pre-college going into my senior year, I think. And that was like, oh, my gosh, this is the community I want to be in. Um, and then in textiles, my going into my junior year, I told you a little bit about in the beginning that light click um, with, you know, I want to make this work that's really process experimental thinking as opposed yeah. to, you know, viable uh, design product. And that was another I felt my peers couldn't wait to get their jobs and, mm-hmm. you know, working as designers or working with different textile houses or whatever. And I just wanted to stay in the studio. I was like, this is this is the space. That's awesome. So I think that's, you know, it's yeah. like, all right, this is what I want to do. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much for stopping by the first Thanks for stop. Having me. Yeah, this yeah. was really fun. Me too. Remember to subscribe to us on iTunes. If you like the show, give us a good rating. And if you have a moment, write a review. Thanks for listening. Special thanks to Bruce Barber, director of WNHU, for providing the resources and guidance to make this podcast possible.